0: doesn't have You know, No, I won't sell I'm not... I'm going to get
1: no, i oh no yeah it's
0: so, the thing about it is that if you want to play a role in that, you can actually make your really you know well place <laughs> you and i off road because <laughs> i see you know when we dream of these things when we Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this chilly morning and to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted to have Dr. Kotloff with us today from the Cleveland Clinic. He has disclosed no potential conflicts of interest, and he will be introduced to us today by Dr. Jeff Munson, who is an assistant professor of medicine and the section chief in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Jeff, come tell us about Dr. Kotloff. Uh, thanks, Rich. But before we get to, to Rob, we've got to do a little series of introductions. So this is the Joseph Lynch Lecture, so I need to say a word about Dr. Lynch as the uh, benefactor who's made this possible. So Dr. Lynch, um, can't join us, but he was a graduate of the Dartmouth Medical School in 1971. Um, He did an internship and residency in medicine and fellowship in pulmonary disease at the University of Michigan, and then spent 25 years at the University of Michigan before transferring to the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, where he is the Holton Joe Hickman Endowed Chair of Advanced Lung Diseases and Lung Transplantation, and is the Associate Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine and Clinical Immunology. It's fitting that Dr. Kotloff is coming to give a talk, um, as Dr. Kotloff's Interests and Dr. Lynch's interests um, heavily overlap. So at this point, it's a pleasure to introduce Dr. Kotloff, who is a mentor and friend of mine from our history at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a graduate of Brown University and the Yale University School of Medicine he completed internal, residency, internal medicine residency training at Temple where he was also a chief resident before moving to do his fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he then joined the faculty at Penn where he served for 24 years before leaving in 2014 to become the chairman of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, Dr. Kotloff has a long history of involvement in many different aspects of pulmonary medicine, including cystic fibrosis and lung transplantation, and has additionally a special expertise in the evaluation and management of patients with lymph the public health epidemic that it is. Um, He also maintains an active interest in general pulmonary medicine and in evaluating patients with complex pulmonary disorders. In addition to his history as a truly outstanding clinician, um, Dr. Kotloff has made medical education and scholarship really a focus of his career. He's authored over 100 peer-reviewed articles, review articles, and book chapters, and has edited or co-edited four books, including Fishman's Pulmonary Diseases and Disorders, which, if you haven't read it, is a truly riveting read. Um, He directed the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Training Program at the University of Pennsylvania for 24 years, where he mentored many very successful fellows and then others like me. Um, He has served as the chair of the Pulmonary Disease Test Writing Committee for the American Board of Internal Medicine, the chair of the Transplant Network of the American College of Chest Physicians, and president of the Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Program Directors. He was an associate editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, our flagship journal from 2010 to 2014, and is a section editor for CHEST. He's received numerous awards for both education and research throughout his career. And on a more personal note, I would say that Dr. Kotloff has managed to demonstrate an ability to maintain a truly encyclopedic knowledge of both general pulmonary medicine and his areas of subspecialty expertise, while at the same time maintaining a truly admirable sense of humility. So without further ado, it is a pleasure to introduce Dr. Kotloff.
1: Thank you very much for that introduction. Can all of you hear me adequately with the mic where it is? Okay, let me just make a few comments about Jeff if I could before I get started on this talk.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: So as Jeff mentioned, um, I was a fellowship director at Penn for 24 years And I have to say there are a few fellows who truly stand out as the most outstanding. And I I was privileged to be associated with a lot of outstanding fellows. But Jeff is clearly one of the top three fellows that I was privileged to work with. And you may know or may not know that it's a two-way street. I hope that I've taught Jeff uh, quite a bit about pulmonary medicine, but in turn he has also taught me um, as well. I'll also tell you a lesson. So uh, Jeff joined our faculty at Penn for um, one or two years before coming up north. And we always describe him as the one who got away. And I would tell you to hold on to him because he's a keeper and he's outstanding. And our mission statement at the fellowship program was that we uh, we're intent upon training the next generation of leaders in pulmonary medicine. And I can say that looking at Jeff and where he is in his current position, uh, we have clearly succeeded in that role. So it's a privilege to be here, and it's a privilege to catch up with uh, with Jeff. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk to you about a disease that um, most of you will never see and many of you probably can't even pronounce. Um, and uh, for that reason, we actually refer to lymphangelioma. Lyomyomatosis as Lamb. My subtitle, as you'll see, uh, is very fitting. It's actually a tale of a mother, a child, and an orphan disease, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But I find myself being a little bit defensive here, so why have I chosen a topic such as this for a group of individuals, most of whom are not pulmonologists? Many of you will never even see this disease on a board question. Um, but I think there are three themes that. Uh, resonate uh, with me, and actually let me do this first, there we go. And hopefully one of these themes will resonate with you as well. Uh, First as we'll get into, this is a tale of motherhood and of the power of motherhood and and what can be accomplished by a determined mother and an ill daughter. The second for many of you in the room is this is a um, tale of uh, multidisciplinary collaboration And uh, I will tell you that this breaks down many of the artificial walls that we've created in academic medical centers. So I would argue that diseases no longer respect organs or disciplines. And this is not just a pulmonary disease. In fact, the major advances, to quote Frank McCormick, who has devoted his career to this, um, reflect a collaboration between pulmonary investigators and clinicians, tuberous sclerosis geneticists, drosophila biologists, and patient advocacy groups. And finally, if you're anything like me, um, the other reason to learn about this disease is just an absolute pure fascination with zebras, with the varied ways in which diseases can present and in the um, array of underlying mechanisms that produce these diseases. Excuse me. So let me start with the tale of uh, the mother, the child, and the orphan disease and give you a little bit of a sense of the history of this disease. What we think was the first case of lamb, uh, at the time not labeled as such, was actually derived in a case report found in the literature and published in 1919. It took another 50 years before enough cases were seen that the first case series was actually published and that was in 1966. So until the 1990s and actually during the time that I was in fellowship training, this was considered a rare and exotic disease that none of us understood and that all of us assumed was uniformly fatal. Well, something happened in 1994. <clears throat> Shown here is Sue Burns, the mother, and her daughter, Andrea Burns. And in 1994, Andrea Burns presented to an emergency room with a pneumothorax, was ultimately found to have cystic lung disease, went to multiple medical centers, <clears throat> excuse me, before going to National Jewish Hospital in Denver, where someone recognized that in fact she had this very exotic disease called LAM. And what they told her was that this was a disease without treatment, a disease that was poorly understood, and a disease that was going to be fatal um, with, her, with respect to her daughter within the next decade. Well Sue Burns refused to accept that. She refused to accept that in 1994 when you could send someone to the moon that you couldn't conquer a disease and things took off from there. She started a grassroots effort, raised money, and in 1995, established the Lamb Foundation. She, in this grassroots effort, then lobbied congressmen with a letter-writing campaign. And under the umbrella of women's health care issues, most of which were devoted to breast cancer at the time, she actually secured a promise from Congress to fund a NIH National Registry to set up some seed money for research, and from there, the rest is history. In, to, in uh, 1998, the genetic basis, the mutation uh, that underlies this disease was identified by Lisa Hensky, an oncologist at the time at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. Subsequently, the signaling pathway, the AKT signaling pathway that controls proliferation of the lamb cells was identified. And with this insight and understanding into the molecular basis, rational drug therapy evolved and two clinical trials in 2003 and 2006 were conducted. In 2011, the results of that second trial were released, demonstrating efficacy of a drug called Sirolimus. And just last year, that drug achieved FDA approval for an orphan disease. Pretty amazing, all coming from a mother who refused to accept no as an answer. What is Sue Byrne's legacy? She actually retired from the Lamb Foundation this past year, but she leaves a very thriving organization. And just to give you a sense, um, to date, $15 million has been raised by the Lamb Foundation to support Lamb research. In conjunction, the NIH, through the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, has committed an additional $20 million since the founding of the foundation. There are now 2,000 women in the United States who are registered through the foundation. There's an annual LAMposium, is what we like to call it, uh, which is attended by scientists, clinicians, and also the community of patients who, self, uh, who call themselves lammies and it's an interesting idea of having a conference each year that brings together scientists and patients. There are now 30 designated LAM clinics in the United States that are prepared to conduct clinical trials, and now 24 international LAM clinic sites as well. So let's move into a discussion of the disease itself. Um, This is a fascinating disease in its demographics. LAM is a disease that is almost exclusively, with very rare exception, a disease of women, typically of childbearing years. It's characterized by the presence of smooth muscle cells, so-called LAM cells, that that proliferate and infiltrate into various components of the lung, including the airways, the vessels, and the lymphatics. And it's also characterized by a very um, dramatic, destructive process leaving behind cysts throughout the lungs, as I'll show you in a subsequent slide. If you look at the three characteristics that define LAM, unregulated cell growth, vascular and lymphatic spread, as I will show you, and local tissue invasion and destruction, The paradigm has actually shifted in our understanding of this disease. We used to call this an interstitial lung disease, and we would group it with things like sarcoid and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But now we actually view it as a so-called primordial or low-grade neoplastic disorder. Again, these three characteristics are shared by um, all cancers, basically. In terms of the epidemiology, um, there are two... um, Ways in which lam is encountered. It's encountered in a very rare disorder that um, some of you may remember from medical school as one of the neurocutaneous syndromes called tuber sclerosis complex. It's also it also occurs in a sporadic form. So we refer to these as TSC lam and S lam or sporadic lam. Lam may actually be the only manifestation of TSC. So TSC in its um, full presentation is associated with profound cognitive impairment with um, skin lesions, characteristic skin lesions, and with refractory seizures. But we've now come to recognize that there are some patients with, with TSC where the only manifestation are the cystic changes in the lung. So one needs to look a little bit further in those situations. About a third of women with TSC will have these cystic changes, but they're often mild and would go undetected if we did not do CT screening. And finally, if we look at sporadic LAM, uh, we, will, we acknowledge that it's a relatively rare disease with an estimated prevalence of about three to five per million. However, <clears throat> I'll also tell you that I think we're grossly underdiagnosing this disease. And for those of us who run LAM clinics, it's not that uncommon to see women who have presented to an emergency room with a kidney stone or abdominal pain or some other reason that they got a CT scan And lo and behold, they have cystic changes at the lung bases that then trigger an evaluation and diagnosis of what otherwise would have been subclinical disease. As I mentioned, both forms of the disease are seen almost exclusively in women. There are cases, a handful of cases, of men with TSC who present with cystic changes. And there's one case that all of us are still scratching our heads about of a genetically proven male, who presented with the sporadic form of LAM. No evidence for underlying TSC. That phenomenon, and as far as I know, there's only one case reported that, has yet to be fully explained. This is a disease of young women, and the average age of diagnosis is 35 years. Although, as I will show you on a subsequent slide, many women have symptoms for a number of years before they present, and are often misdiagnosed before the correct diagnosis is made. The demographics, uh, at this point in time, uh, this appears to be a disease uh, uh, with a predominance uh, in the Caucasian population, although we're now recognizing as we establish cent- lamb centers throughout the world that this does have a worldwide distribution and that some of the demographics we're seeing here may reflect simply uh, access of these various populations to healthcare and also to internet. You'd be amazed how many lamb patients self-diagnose they they have cysts, they're told they have emphysema, but they're 35 years old, they've never smoked. They go online, they type, they Google, the way all of us now do, and they become LAM experts and realize that maybe they have something other than what their physician told them. In terms of the clinical features of this disease, i actually break them down into um, two categories. There's the typical generic symptoms that virtually all patients with respiratory disease will present with, so shortness of breath um, is very prevalent and in fact uh, at some point during the course of the disease affects uh, virtually all patients. Cough, chest pain are relatively nonspecific findings. However, there are two that should at least make you think of this disease. If a young woman presents with a spontaneous pneumothorax, you have to think of LAM or you're gonna miss the diagnosis. And very often, particularly in um, tall, slender young women, we think of these spontaneous pneumothoraces that occur because of apical blebs, and no one goes further in getting a CAT scan to explore it. But it's something you have to think about in this population. Pneumothorax occurs as the presenting sign in about 40% of patients, and at any point in the course in up to two-thirds of patients. The other clue... Is the development of chylus effusions, these milky effusions that occur in the pleural space. And while many of us are accustomed to thinking of malignancy as the uh, primary cause for chylus effusions, lymphoma being the leading cause, um, certainly, again, in uh, women who meet this demographic, young women with a chylus effusion, another reason to think about the diagnosis of LAM. The radiographic presentation is shown here. This is a very characteristic CT scan. And what you see here are innumerable cysts um, that vary only slightly in configuration. They tend to be relatively round. And they vary somewhat in size, but not dramatically so. So relatively uniform in size and configuration. And importantly, as you look at these, they have um, distinct walls surrounding them. So to a radiologist... To a pulmonologist, when you see this, the question you have to ask is, is this simply emphysema, where you're getting dropout of parenchyma without a discrete wall, or are you actually dealing with one of the cystic lung diseases? And in this case, it's readily apparent, although I would challenge you that it's not always so apparent. And in fact, um, as I alluded to, um, many patients who come to me have been told that they have precocious emphysema. They typically get screened for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is a genetic form of emphysema that invariably turns out to be negative. But here's an example where it's really hard to say whether these are true cysts. I can make out some areas where there do seem to be walls, but there are other areas, particularly an area like this, that look very much like central lobular or pan lobular emphysema. And I would have a hard time actually saying Definitively, that this patient has LAM, which is, in fact, what she ended up having. So not always so easy, and in particular to the relatively inexperienced community radiologist who hasn't seen a lot of these cases, even the more characteristic CAT scan that I've shown you here is often misdiagnosed as emphysema. In terms of pulmonary function testing, a number of patients, uh, up to a third, at time of presentation will have normal lung function. But characteristically, these patients will go on to develop airflow obstruction. So in contradistinction to other so-called interstitial lung diseases with which LAM has been grouped, those diseases uh, typically present with restriction, a concentric and proportional decrease in both the FEV1 and the vital capacity such that the ratio is preserved. But LAM is a disease of airflow obstruction. The PFTs associated with LAM very much mimic those that one would associate with emphysema, again raising that diagnostic conundrum. Um, And also uh, the PFTs very much resemble those that would be seen in an asthmatic. Um, This is typically uh, a progressive disorder, and while the rate of progression is quite variable um, in Recent studies, the rate of decline is somewhere around 75 to 120 cc's per year. But again, wide variation from patients who remain remarkably stable for many years to patients who have a very aggressive and relentless decline in lung function. The histology... um, One of the things I've been taught as a pulmonologist who doesn't look at a lot of slides is you've probably noticed in whatever discipline when a clinician shows a pathology slide, they just sort of wave their pointer around because we don't actually know what we're looking at. (laughs) Um, But I will tell you, uh, this is uh, a uh, surgical specimen, lung biopsy specimen, where you can hardly, I would say you can't recognize normal lung architecture. Um, What you're seeing is invasion of the lung parenchyma with... uh, a very cellular um, population, and in between that, these clefts or cysts. If we look at a high-power view, um, my pathology colleagues assure me that these look like smooth muscle cells infiltrating the lung. One of the major advances in diagnosis has come with the um, discovery that lamb cells, lamb smooth muscle cells, Um, actually take up, characteristically take up, a particular stain, HMB45. It's not clear why they take up this stain, because HMB45 is actually a stain that is used for um, melanocytes. In fact, it's used, for example, to diagnose melanoma. So why smooth muscle cells would take up this this stain is not entirely clear. And in fact, not all, as you can see here, while there are a lot of uh, smooth muscle cells on this slide, uh, it, the, the stain is only uh, intermittently and sporadically taken up. But what that has allowed us to do is now have a definitive stain so that we can use smaller and smaller pieces of tissue to make a diagnosis. In the past, virtually every patient was diagnosed with a surgical lung biopsy. Now, if we need a biopsy, we will often, as a first attempt, do a bronchoscopy, non surgical. The biopsies, if you've ever seen them, are relatively meager. They're sort of breadcrumb in size. But because of the particular staining characteristics, the yield of bronchoscopy has been documented to be about 50%. So if we do need tissue, we will often recommend to patients that that be the first procedure. There's a second curious component to this disease um, with an equally long, slightly shorter name. Uh, renal angiomyolipomas, or what we call AMLs, and these are seen in virtually all patients who have TSC limb, and in about a third of patients who have sporadic limb. These are hamartomatous lesions, meaning that the cells themselves are not um, are normal in appearance, but there's sort of this dysregulated growth, as if the um, hematominus lesion is trying to form a normal organ, but obviously it's a, it's a mixture of normal tissue in an abnormal way. And in fact, uh, AMLs are composed of three major components, uh, blood vessels, smooth muscle cells, and importantly, and we take advantage of this in terms of diagnosis, fat. And as I'll show you on a subsequent slide, we can often make the diagnosis of AML simply with a CAT scan or MRI or even ultrasound of the abdomen, of the kidneys. However, there are some AMLs that are what we call lipid poor, meaning they have very small amounts of fat that may only be seen under the microscope. And in that case, it's not uncommon for some women with AMLs to actually be referred to a urologist with a consideration that the patient could in fact have renal cell carcinoma. AMLs are usually clinically silent but when they are large, they can actually cause flank pain, hematuria, and very rarely, they can cause loss of renal function. They tend to displace normal renal tissue rather than invade. So usually, the renal, the normal renal parenchyma still functions um, to preserve kidney function. But in some cases, you do get loss of kidney function because these tend to be so vascular. When they enlarge, the major danger to these is that they can spontaneously rupture and cause retroperitoneal bleeds. We start to worry about that when um, the, they reach a size a diameter of four centimeters or larger and it's at that point that we intervene. Just to show you what AMLs look like, this is uh, one of my patients with very characteristic changes. So you can see these rounded densities, The attenuation on CT scan is very similar to the subcutaneous fat. And again, that's the characteristic appearance of these. You don't need to go any further. There is no other tumor of the kidney, as far as I understand, that has these characteristic fat densities. These can actually grow quite large. Um, This is a patient of mine who has TS-associated LAM. These are kidneys. Um, She actually, if you look lower, there is normal renal tissue, and in fact, believe it or not, she has normal creatinine, normal renal function, but she also has palpable kidneys. It's understandable that you could actually feel these on an an examination of the the abdomen. And certainly, this is a situation where you would worry very much about bleeding, you can see some uh, hyperattenuated uh, densities here, uh, and this was an attempted embolization to try to deprive this AML of its vascular supply in order to allow it to shrink. But usually when it's this large, embolization alone will not be effective. I want to turn now to the um, molecular pathogenesis of the, d- the disease and, and give credit to um, a woman who I mentioned earlier, Lisa Henske, um, who at the time she did this work, was an oncologist at Fox Chase Cancer Center, uh, very interested in tumor suppressor genes. She's currently now running the TSC and Lam Center uh, at um, Harvard, at Massachusetts General. And <clears throat> I'm not sure what drove her uh, interest specifically in, in TSC, but she was the one who discovered that mutations of so-called TSC1 and TSC2 tumor suppressor genes characterized patients who had both TSC-associated LAM and sporadic (coughs) LAM. These genes encode for two proteins uh, known as Hamilton and Tuberin, and these proteins in turn uh, actually have an inhibitory effect on cell growth and proliferation such that when these proteins become dysfunctional, there's loss of inhibition and therefore um, permitting and facilitating unchecked uh, cell growth. In TSC, the mutations are in the germline, so every cell in the body is affected. You can detect the mutation throughout the body. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and we take advantage of this in terms of diagnostic testing because there's now commercially available um, genetic mutation testing to with a blood sample or a um, swab of buccal mucosa to look for these TSC1 and TSC2 mutations. In sporadic LAM, these mutations are only seen in affected organs, so if you sample the smooth muscle cells in the lung, you can demonstrate mutations in the gene, but if you sample the blood, buccal mucose, et cetera, you will not detect this. <clears throat> I just want to show you schematically our understanding of the um, genetic, uh, the underlying genetic pathogenesis of of this disease. And the reason I show you this is, this is fundamental to the subsequent development of rational therapeutic intervention. So what I'm showing you here is a signaling pathway known as the AKT pathway that is used by a number of growth factors, for example, insulin, PDGF. It's also the signaling pathway through which the estrogen receptor uh, functions. There's a number of components to it, but um, core to this signaling pathway are these two protein products of TSC1 and TSC2 genes that I alluded to. I mentioned that they have an inhibitory effect on the downstream regulation of this signaling pathway, and as we look downstream, we see mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin, somewhat cumbersome name, But these proteins are responsible for keeping mTOR in check. When these proteins become dysfunctional, as we see in LAM, uh, both sporadic and TSC-associated, this allows sort of uh, this signaling pathway to continue in an unregulated fashion, leading to cell proliferation, tissue damage, angiogenesis, as we see with the AMLs of the kidney, and actually lymphangiogenesis, as we see in the lungs as well. There's a second component to the pathogenesis that we're now coming to recognize. So why do these patients, the previous pathway would explain why there's infiltration of the lung with smooth muscle cells, but it doesn't explain why there are cysts in the lung. The prior explanation, which never quite made sense, was that this was a post-obstructive process, that if you obstruct small airways, that you get post-obstructive dilatation of the airways beyond that point, and that these cysts are actually abnormal airways. But um, that has not proven to be true. And what we now uh, have come to understand, at least in preliminary fashion, is that a number of MMPs, or matrix metalloproteinases, that cause tissue destruction are actually upregulated in lamb cells. So these lamb cells not only infiltrate, but they produce MMPs that then have a secondary destructive effect in causing cyst formation within the lung parenchyma. Interestingly, MMPs have been associated with development of metastases because what they also allow are malignant cells in cancers, for example, to detach, enter the bloodstream, lymphatics, et cetera, and metastasize, and as I'll show you in a couple minutes, we now think that MMPs may promote metastatic spread of these LAM cells as well. Mm-hmm. So this raises a question. Um, I'm told you that we have shifted our understanding of this disease from a interstitial lung disease to actually a neoplastic disease and I shared with you the three characteristics of neoplastic disease that Lamb um, actually shares. Um, and one of them is the ability to metastasize. <clears throat> and summarized on this slide is um, the evidence that supports the notion that LAM is in fact a metastatic disease. Um, first, there are a number of uh, studies, uh, pathologic studies in autopsies, explanted lungs, etc that show um, that there are clusters of lamb cells that can be found budding off of lymphatic vessels. These lamb cells can also be found shed into the pleural space as a component of chylos effusions, and they're also found in regional lymph nodes, very much you know akin to what we see with lung cancer. If you sample regional lymph nodes in the lung, you'll often see these HMB45 positive cells. In one study, and this is perhaps the most compelling uh, argument, lamb cells were actually isolated from the um, peripheral blood. Now this was only seen in about half of the patients. It's not clear. This may be episodic and therefore not not seen continuously in all patients, but this is relatively compelling evidence that lamb cells can see the bloodstream and metastasize. Um, This is an interesting observation. Um, If you subject a patient with LAM who has end-stage disease to lung transplantation, we have since learned that in a number of those cases, the disease will recur, usually in very mild form and not to an extent that will compromise the function of the allograft, but nonetheless, we see recurrence of LAM in the transplanted lung. Genetic analysis studies have shown that the lamb cells that are recovered are not of donor origin. So every other constituent of that allograft when it's renewed, when you have cellular renewal is from donor origin. But in this case, these lamb cells are of recipient origin arguing very much that they are infiltrating from another site. And our theory is that they actually metastasize from regional lymph nodes that are not removed from the recipient at the time that the transplant is performed. So another compelling piece of evidence The big question is, if we're saying the lung is a secondary site of involvement, rather than the primary site, what is the primary site? Lisa Henske, who I've mentioned uh, uh, as the uh, scientist who has really led our understanding of the molecular basis of this disease, postulated that the kidney was the primary site, and that the kidney gradually releases these cells, and the lung being the major filter of all the blood supply from the vital organs uh, would naturally then be the site where these cells would take up residence. The problem is, as I've shown you on, the, on a previous slide, only about a third of patients with sporadic LAM have angiomyolipomas of the kidney, so that doesn't fully explain what's going on. There was an interesting study published about four or five years ago now that suggests a different site, and that is um, the uterus. Um, this was a study where a very small study where they had 10 patients with pulmonary lamb and 10 controls, where uterine specimens were available either through autopsy or through prior hysterectomy, and they carefully sectioned these specimens and stained them for HMB um, cells, and they found that in nine of 10 patients who had lamb, shown schematically here, they were able to detect nests of these HMB45 positive cells, whereas this was not true in any of the 10 in the control population. So still obviously very preliminary, but suggesting that in fact the uterus, which is obviously very rich in smooth muscle cells, may in fact be the primary site of this disease. Let me move now into a discussion of how we diagnose this disease, and um, I've mentioned that the average age of patients is around 35 years of age, but most of these patients have had symptoms for a number of years before the diagnosis was established. Um, Shown here um, is a study that suggests this was from the NIH registry, showing that patients had an average of three to five years of symptoms, typically dyspnea, and importantly, two spontaneous pneumothoraces before the disease was recognized and diagnosed. I've mentioned this before, but this is very important. Young woman, otherwise healthy, presents with dyspnea, what's your, and you get spirometry, office spirometry on the patient. You're the primary care physician, the, the frontline caregiver. What are you going to assume the patient has? Well, we're all going to assume the patient has asthma, and we don't go doing CAT scans on every patient who has mild dyspnea and airflow obstruction. So Patients often carry a diagnosis of asthma. If a CT is obtained, then for reasons that I described before, these patients will often be labeled as having precocious emphysema. So how do we actually diagnose the disease? And one of the points I want to make here is we really want to get away from the way the diagnosis was established not that long ago, five, ten years ago, and unfortunately is still established in the community, and that is with surgical lung biopsy. We have since learned that with the diagnostic tools we have, we can often, in fact in the majority of cases, make a diagnosis non-invasively or minimally invasively without having to resort to a surgical lung biopsy. And we can make that diagnosis in some cases purely clinically, in some cases serologically, and in a few cases pathologically. So let's just go through this in a little bit more detail. If we have a CAT scan that looks like the CAT scan I showed you, lung cysts, and we can confidently say that this patient has cystic lung disease, and if in addition to that they have AMLs of the kidney, you've made your diagnosis. So the first thing that I do as a provider when I see a patient with cystic lung disease, or one of the first things I do, is I get a CT of the abdomen. Because if we find those AMLs, we have made a confidently made a diagnosis of LAM. Or if we have cystic lung disease with a chylose effusion and, we, and that CT does not show evidence of malignancy in the mediastinum, we've made the diagnosis. Or if we have a patient with known or ultimately proven TS and cystic lung disease. So this is the way that we can make a diagnosis with absolute certainty in, purely based on clinical criteria. Cystic lung disease in a non smoking female. Why does that matter? It actually has nothing to do with emphysema and more to do with another cystic lung disease that I'll show you in a minute called Langerhans cell histiocytosis that can look very much like LAM but is seen almost exclusively in smokers. So if we have a young woman who's a smoker, it broadens the differential a little bit and you can't be so certain. Beg FD is a angiogenesis factor and lymphangiogenesis factor that is now shown to be a biomarker of the disease. And in fact, we've exploited this to use it as a diagnostic test. And I'll show you in the next slide um, why that is. But if we have a patient with cystic lung disease and a markedly elevated VEGFD level, we've made the diagnosis. And then finally, if we go through this algorithm and still there's diagnostic uncertainty, then we do need tissue. But as I mentioned, we won't necessarily go to a VATS biopsy first. We may at this point at least entertain the option of transbronchial lung biopsy. And I pose it to a patient that the advantage to this is that it's non-surgical. The disadvantage is it's a 50-50 chance that we're gonna make a diagnosis. And there are some patients who tell you, I only want one procedure, and therefore I want a surgical biopsy. But others who are willing, um, if at all possible, to avoid that surgical lung biopsy, who are very willing to undergo the the non-surgical procedure. So this is data from University of Cincinnati um, looking at VEGFD as a diagnostic tool um, in healthy patients, and then a number of categories of disease that could be mistaken for LAM. Emphysema, as we'll talk about, um, the other cystic diseases, birdhog Dubai, Sjogren's, Langerhans cell, and then LAM. And you can see that in the LAM population, um, that many of those patients have very high levels of VEGFD, and there seems to be a clear-cut separation at around 800 picograms that defines LAM patients and separates them from these other populations. So we now use this as a diagnostic test. Unfortunately, it's not commercially available and does require a send-out to the University of Cincinnati, but you can actually go online to their site, get the form, patient goes with this form to any laboratory, the blood's drawn and shipped off to Cincinnati. I'm not gonna go over this slide, it's a very complicated one, but um, so what I tell fellows who rotate with me on, in my clinic is when you see cystic lung disease, the good news is that there's only four diseases that cause this, so it's not a lot to remember. The bad news is that they're all totally obscure and esoteric, so it is hard to remember these diseases. Um, but the four diseases that, um, that typically cause cysts in the lung, LAM, I mentioned Langerhans cell histiocytosis. A fascinating disease to me, called hogg Dubé, which is a recently recognized disease, and then something called lymphocytic interstitial pneumonia that we see characteristically in Sjogren's patients. And I won't go through the details of this slide, except to say that there are um, characteristic CT appearance, other manifestations, PFT patterns, and labs that can allow us to tease out and distinguish between these. I will give you a quick radiographic survey. Um, that we actually in many cases can distinguish just on the basis of what the cysts look like. Um, so birdhog du Bay typically has these um, more oblong uh, cysts, sort of these sausage-shaped cysts that hug the subplural space. Langerhans cell, the cysts tend to be much coarser, much more varied in size and shape, and the walls um, tend to be much more pronounced and Sjogren's, uh, this is a patient of mine with Sjogren's and LIP. Very often, in addition to cysts, you'll see other signs of uh, LIP in the form of ground glass opacities or interstitial lung disease. Unfortunately, not all patients read the textbook, as you know, and this is a patient with LIP who looks, for all intents and purposes, like they have LAM. Okay. Um, Initial management of these patients, so once we've established the diagnosis, Um, We do a careful screening to look for tuberous sclerosis, not necessarily because it changes treatment, but because it has significant implications with respect to genetic counseling. Um, Children of a patient with TS have a 50% chance of passing that gene on, and it can be a a devastating disease. Um, So these patients need genetic counseling. We also screen for AMLs, and as I mentioned, if they're large, we want to intervene. And then we assess their lung function, and their oxygenation. And just very quickly, again, reminiscent of that one obscure lecture you may have had in medical school, these are some of the um, cutaneous manifestations of TS that we look for, so when I say a careful exam, um, that means looking at every single digit, having the patient take off their their shoes and socks, um, looking for these very subtle subungual hematomas that we can sometimes see, and you may only see one of them, and if you're like me, where you've now adopted the, um, the so-called orthopedic tripoint, you know, you put your stethoscope on one area and you examine the heart, lungs, and abdomen at the same time, um, that's not something you can do when you see one of these patients. Um, we also can screen in asymptomatic patients by doing CT or MRIs. And even in a patient who has normal cognition, no seizures, we can see the characteristic cortical tubers and some of the other characteristic features, so if we want to screen, we can do uh, imaging, and then finally, we can do genetic testing. Let me turn now for the last five minutes to talk about treatment, and this is really, to me, the most impressive part of the story, and as I said, it is really based on the advances that were made at the bench and then translated to the bedside. Um, four types of therapy that I'll uh, discuss, hormonal manipulation, sirolimus, Sympostatin and transplantation. For many, many years, hormonal therapy was the basis for treatment. We used to subject women to these relatively painful monthly IM injections of medroxyprogesterone or to um, actual surgical oophorectomy with the notion that we were trying to decrease circulating estrogen levels. There was a rationale for this. It's a disease of women, childbearing years certainly suggest that there's a hormonal influence. I showed you that estrogen receptor activation occurs through the AKT pathway. Lamb cells have been shown to have estrogen receptors on their uh, cell surface or intracellularly. There are anecdotal reports of worsening of the disease with pregnancy and with administration of exogenous estrogens. And finally, we've documented that postmenopausally, the rate of decline in lung function slows. So, this is a compelling argument for why circulating estrogen may play a very important role and therefore why reducing circulating estrogen levels may be therapeutically valuable. Unfortunately, to date, there has been no compelling evidence that this works and we have abandoned that approach. So let's move on to Sirolimus and I showed you the rationale for why we think this might work. Sirolimus is an mTOR inhibitor. So it will effectively turn off the AKT signaling pathway and therefore has profound anti-proliferative effects. The first clinical study that was designed was done in a very rational fashion. So if you want to see if this drug works in LAM, why not choose a readily apparent marker of disease that can be measured, and in which you might expect changes in a relatively short period of time? Okay, What might that be? AMLs of the kidney. You can image them, you can measure their volume, you can start the drug, and then you can remeasure the volume. And that's what was done in the first study that was published in the New England Journal by the Cincinnati Group. Uh, it was a multicenter trial. Uh, this is a summary slide that shows in about two dozen women that when sirolimus therapy was started, the volume of AMLs decreased significantly in all patients. However, during the second year, of ther- uh, second year when sirolimus was discontinued, there was regrowth suggesting that the benefits of sirolimus were only during the time that the drug was actually administered. And this is just a visual showing, again, I can't really uh, see very well here, but here's an AML here um, and you can see at 12 months, um, the left kidney is much smaller, the AMLs have diminished in size, and the AML in the right kidney is no longer visible. So, proof of concept. Next came the landmark study published in the New England Journal in 2011, but this trial was initiated I believe in 2006 or 2008. You can appreciate that with a very rare disease, it's gonna take a long time to accrue patients. It was a very challenging study, but ultimately um, successfully recruited. And um, this is a slide showing the results of the trial. So there were about 40 patients in the placebo group shown in the open circles and there were approximately 40 patients in the treatment group who were given sirolimus. This was a randomized prospective trial, and you can see that at 12 months, there was a significant difference in FEV1, again, one of the standard markers of lung function, such that FEV1 was preserved in those who were treated, but declined in those who were not. There was a second washout phase where the treatment group, um, the drug was withdrawn, And what that showed us was that once the drug is withdrawn, very similar to what we saw with AMLs, lung function declines in parallel with what we saw in the placebo group. So again, effect is only as durable as the ongoing administration of the drug. I'm going to skip this for the sake of time and just mention to you that initially there were a lot of fears about sirolimus. You may know that the drug was initially developed as an anti-rejection drug for solid organ transplantation. It obviously has Um, immunosuppressive effects, so there was concern in addition to its other toxicities that we might see an increased risk of infection. It ends up that the drug is very well tolerated. It does have some common nuisance side effects um, shown here, Um, but in the study and in our subsequent experience, we have not seen an increased risk of opportunistic infection, and serolimus serolimus curiously can cause an inflammatory reaction in the lung called Rapamycin or Sirolimus pneumonitis, um, and to date this has not been reported in the lamb population, probably because we're using much lower doses than we use in organ transplantation. So the Sirolimus story, resounding success, very dramatic, and it's now become standard of care. And as I mentioned, in 2015 was FDA approved for the use of this drug um, for treatment of lamb tell you a little bit about what's on the horizon, possibly, and and let me tell you about the role of statins. This is data that comes from a mouse. So if you're a mouse with LAM, you definitely want to be on a statin. If you are a human with LAM, the jury is still out. But this is actually data that comes from one of my colleagues, former colleagues at Penn, Vera Krumskaya, in her laboratory. She has actually developed a mouse model of LAM. And just shown here is... um, a mouse on day zero, the lamb cells are then implanted, and you can see that by day 15 you get these nodular densities that are actually these smooth muscle cells um, spontaneously proliferating, and you also start to see cyst formation. And here by day 20, these massive nodular densities interspersed with cysts. These are graphs just showing if you objectively measure the. Uh, percentage of lung that is occupied by these lesions, that it increases over time. And if you look at the percentage of lung occupied by holes or cysts, that also increases over time. <clears throat> this is a little bit of a complicated slide, so let me walk through, through it both graphically and then schematically. So the, this mouse model, these mice were then subjected, either the control getting neither drug or various combinations of getting one or the other drug or both and if we look at, I believe it was day 12, um, in the control group, the number of lesions. So there's significant uh, proliferation of these nodules in the lung, as I showed you. But if we give RAPA alone, simvastatin alone, or RAPA plus simvastatin, um, you can actually inhibit the uh, development and growth of these lesions. So all of these drugs, either alone, both of these drugs, either alone or in combination, seem to inhibit proliferation of lamb cells. This is the more curious observation, which is looking not at proliferation of lamb cells, but development of these cysts. And what you can see is that in the control group given neither drug, these cysts did develop by day 12. In the group given rapamycin or sirolimus, there was no difference in the area of lung occupied by these cysts. But when you incorporate simvastatin into the treatment of these mice, you saw dramatic inhibition of cyst formation. That's a pretty impressive result if it translates into the human, and at this point in time, we just don't know that. There is currently a safety trial going on just proving that the combination of simvastatin and seromus is safe. The next will be a phase two trial looking um, at impact on cyst formation. Uh, Just a quick word on transplant, and then I'm gonna conclude here. So transplantation is reserved for patients who have far advanced disease. We're hoping that in the future we won't see these patients, um, but currently we do. Um, And these patients are characterized by very far advanced disease with lung function that's down around 20% of normal. Because many of these patients have had pleuridesis for pneumothorax, this is not an easy transplant. Getting a lung out that's been pleuridesed is a bloody procedure and should only be done in the hands of the most experienced transplant surgeons. Uh, For reasons I won't get into, we tend to favor um, uh, replacing both lungs rather than one lung. There seems to be superior survival in doing so. And the one year survival, or the uh, one year survival, five year survival, and ten year survival in the lamb population is shown here. This actually compares quite favorably to other patient populations for whom we transplant. Um, I'm just going to mention two things about this slide because I am running out of time. One is that The disease can recur, and this is one of my patients who you can see a cyst here in the allograft, signifying that the disease has in fact returned, but it does not typically (laughs) compromise allograft function. It tends to be more of an incidental finding than something that would actually impair the outcome. The second issue that is very controversial is sirolimus has a profound effect on wound healing. It's an anti-proliferative drug, and if you look at the Labeling on it, there's a black box label that says this cannot be given to lung transplant recipients. Why? Because there are a number of case reports that showed lethal dehiscence of the bronchial anastomosis in patients who received sirolimus at the time the transplant was performed as part of their immunosuppressive therapy. What's not clear is if you have a patient with LAM on sirolimus before transplant, and you stop it at the time of transplant, do those patients still have that same risk? Unfortunately, it takes about 10 days for the drug to be fully leached out of the system, so many transplant centers insist that patients stop the drug beforehand at the time they're listed, and that can have rather dire consequences because then we start to see very dramatic decline in lung function. I'm gonna skip over this and just mention uh, In terms of prognosis, uh, I did tell you that if in the past, because we only recognize the most severe cases, the adage, diagnosis to death in 10 years was applied to these patients. Unfortunately, if you go on the web now, you will still find this. And the reason that I agree to see LAM patients in a week rather than three months from now, even though they have a disease that is not urgent in many ways, (laughs) is because that's the first thing that resonates in their head. They've gone online... They've seen this statistic inappropriately, and they think they've been diagnosed with a death sentence. The current statistics suggest that 10-year survival actually approximates or exceeds 90%. And the future, well, with the introduction of sirolimus and hopefully even more effective agents in the future, I would hope that we would no longer see patients dying from this disease. So let me just wrap up with some take-home points. Um, First, uh, LAM is a disease afflicting women of childbearing years. It's often misdiagnosed as asthma or emphysema. We've had a recent paradigm shift in our understanding and appreciation for this disease, not as an interstitial lung disease, but as actually a low-grade neoplastic disease that uh, possesses all the characteristics of a cancer, but in low-grade indolent fashion. The underlying mechanism is dysregulation of mTOR. And because of that, sirolimus, which is a direct mTOR inhibitor, has been proven to be effective in stabilizing lung function in many patients. And finally, most importantly, do not underestimate the power of a determined mother. Thank you very much. Uh, So time for maybe
0: one or two questions. So one question I have is: um, If you do have a young female with a spontaneous pneumothorax, um, the European guidelines don't recommend getting a CT after the first pneumothorax. What is your take on
1: that? So that's one area where we're actually putting together ATS guidelines that do contradict that to some extent. There is a population of patients between the ages of 25 and 35, non-smokers, where the prevalence of the disease still only about 4% in patients presenting with first pneumothorax is high enough that in a cost effective analysis it was actually felt that it's appropriate to screen. The argument for screening is that you will save patients the cost and uh, suffering that goes along with recurring pneumothorax pneumothoraces because you can intervene after the first and also because you can Um, potentially start serolimus in those who have compromised lung function. So while the Europeans are not recommending screening, I think ATS guidelines will, in fact, recommend in a subset of patients that we do. be quick here. Dan. So one way of distinguishing a neoplastic disorder from a non-neoplastic invasive disorder is whether they're monoclonal. Also, it might indicate what the cell of origin, -hmm. For this um, disorder, is there any um, cell type like amongst the smooth muscle cells that is monoclonal? Um, So I'm going to have to plead ignorance there that I don't know the the answer to that. It's an interesting point, and uh, I can't answer that question for you. Martha?
0: So the TSC2 gene is head to head with the polycystic kidney disease 1 gene. Yes. In these somatic cells that are altered
1: in lab, is there any evidence of dysregulation of the PKD1 gene? Again, something that I would have to defer to Lisa Henske on in terms of uh, whether that's the case or not. Chris, did you
0: have a question? Yeah.
1: Just a quick question. Uh, Since you've shown it's a malignancy, has there been any interest in using the new checkpoint inhibitors to try to actually... Huh. Um, you talking about the, the PD-1 or what, what are you talking and about specifically? PD-1 PD-1. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that on the horizon. In fact, unfortunately, there's not a lot on the horizon right now beyond simvastatin and there's some interest in using plaquinil, but with the interest in PD-1 inhibitors, I wonder whether that might be the next, uh,
0: next stage. <coughs> Dr. Yes. Atkins, there's a
1: structural similarity between the sirolimus and the macrolide antibiotics. Zithromycin. Yes. Have those
0: been tried or no activity there?
1: So they've been tried for one reason and one reason alone. And that you'll find a uh, single case report as a letter to the editor in the New England Journal using uh, one of the macrolides, I believe, because it does have some effect on MMP release. So it was used with the argument that it might prevent further cystic destruction of the lung. Um, And at least biochemically, it does seem to down-regulate MMP circulating levels. But in terms of an effective treatment for LAM, no.
0: All right, I going to end this. Dr. is going to stick around for a couple of questions if you want. I also want to thank Dr. Lynch again for supporting this lecture and everyone for coming. Thank 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 you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.